Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. I am very proud to introduce Patrick Jory, who's come across from UQ this morning. I teach Southeast Asian history over there on the other side of the river. I invited Patrick, and he very kindly accepted to come over here to talk largely about his new book, which is A History of Manners and Civility in Thailand, which is coming out with CUP this year, 2021. Very interesting for me, although I'm not a Southeast Asianist and I'm not a, not a person who's not a historian anymore, because it touches on Norbert Elias, who's one of those interesting figures in sociology. He kind of crops up periodically over and over again, has little revivals here, there and everywhere, and about Elias's civilising process. So I'm going to pass over to Patrick for the normal 40 minutes or so to talk about the history of manners and civility in Thailand and the civilising process in Southeast Asia. Patrick. Thanks very much, Ian, and thanks so much for the invitation to come out to speak here. It's a real pleasure for me to be speaking amongst the fellow Asianists. <laughs> there aren't too many over across the river, so I, I really appreciate that. Sadly, as, as some of you might know, one less with the passing of Professor Chikong Lai a couple of weeks ago. It's a very sad and uh, a very sudden loss for us. What I thought I'd start off by doing, and I'm, this is kind of an interesting aspect of the project, is that I was contacted last year by an animation company that does clips for academics, for academic research, as a way of kind of promoting their research. And initially I didn't think much of it, but I did have a kind of a, a small pot of money which wasn't being used, and I thought I'll see if I can produce an animation about this book as a way of kind of promoting getting it out there, which we all think a lot about these days. So we worked with the company quite closely, and we produced a... I think a two and a half minute animation about uh, basically what the book is about. So I thought I'd start off and, and show you this one, and then we could probably <laughs> just you know, leave it at that, or I can kind of go into a bit more detail. A new social history of Thailand looks at the relationship between power and behaviour over the last 200 years. Adapting Norbert Elias's celebrated work on the history of manners to Southeast Asia, Patrick Jory shows how manners are also key to understanding Thai society. Buddhist teachings emphasize the restraint of body, speech and mind. The goal is total control of the self. Since the 20th century, etiquette manuals further coded human behavior in secular terms, creating the ideal of the gentle person. In the era of the absolute monarchy, courtly rules of behaviour dictated how people should stand, walk, sit and pay respect to high-status people. They also set out how people should sleep, eat, manage their appearance, respect superiors, treat inferiors and socialise. In the first half of the 20th century, power moved away from the monarchy towards the bureaucracy and military in an era of revolution. Manners became more egalitarian. Commoners could aspire to the gentle person ideal, and manners were orientated towards a more bourgeois lifestyle. Power shifted again during the Cold War. Thailand became a royalist military dictatorship, and manners reverted back to courtly ideals, emphasizing submission and respect. But now they were promulgated through state education and the mass media. Though this conservative ideal of good manners still dominates today, the last 50 years have ushered in an era of democratization. Rather than attribute changes in conduct to Western influence, Patrick Jory argues that behavior in Thailand is internally driven and continually adapting. 
Sweeping social and economic change has rendered old models of conduct obsolete. Thailand's youth are rebelling against conservative values. In a time of political instability, the gentleperson ideal, like monarchy-centered politics, is increasingly out of touch with contemporary Thailand. Okay, that's it. Okay, so hopefully I'll try and put a bit of flesh to some of those ideas that were represented in the animation. So really what I want to do today is to kind of talk about how I became interested in this subject, why I think it's important, and the approach that I took in writing about it, and what my conclusions were. And I have to admit that it, it kind of started off as, as a sort of a, a personal interest rather than an academic interest. One of the things that kind of attracted me about Southeast Asia, maybe Thailand in particular, was that I kind of felt people had really good manners. At least I felt treated that way with good manners. But for a long time I never thought about this in a scholarly way. It just seemed to be part of the so-called culture. And I didn't think it could be the subject of an academic study. Then one day I came across a famous Thai manners guide called Sombat Kompudi, or Qualities of a Gentle Person, is the way I've translated by a guy called Jalpaya Prasadet Surentra Tibidi. He's got a very, very long name because he's a, he's a noble descendant of King Rama II in the early 19th century. His career was the late 19th century. He was advisor to the King Dulalongkorn, the, the great sort of modernising king. And this book was published back in 1900. And it's the most famous Thai manners manual. Everyone basically knows Sombat Kompudi. It's still in print today. And... Reading through the book, I could see that many of the forms of manners that I had previously encountered, which I had thought were part of the culture, were in fact actually laid out in, in quite some detail in a very prescriptive fashion in this manual. And so that got me interested. As I looked into the subject more, I could see that there's this huge literature, actually, on manners and comportment going back at least 200 years. And it includes things like Buddhist canonical texts and commentaries, court poetry and treatises on, on courtly protocol. Later on, late 19th, early 20th century, there's an explosion of books on manners and etiquette, kind of similar in lots of ways, actually, to the great interest in etiquette in Europe in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Education curricula, they're talking about manners all the time. They're actual subjects that students have to take on manners. Novels, there's a kind of a novels of manners genre in Thailand in the early 20th century, which is all basically all about you know, behaviour and comportment and, and relations with people, as well as you know, formal government edicts telling the citizens how they ought to behave. And it was also became clear to me that at times of great political change, discussions of manners become quite intense. Whenever there's a, a military coup, the new coup group always brings in like a kind of a set of behavioural ideas, including the, the latest one. So it became clear to me that manners and the broader question of how you conduct yourself had been one of the key questions, I think, of the 20th century. And also, reading through a large corpus of works on manners and conduct more generally, it became clear to me that notions of good manners and civility had changed over time. You know, this idea that it's part of the culture, I think it just really had prevented people from thinking about this in a historical way. Once you sort of see it, obviously, it, it changes over time. Then I started to kind of conceive of, of a way of writing about it historically. So what I'm trying to do in the book is to adapt some aspects of the approach of the famous sociologist Norbert Elias or Elias for the history of manners in Western Europe. His focus was France, Germany and England for the most part. Adapt that to Thai history. One of the key themes of the book is the figure of the entire the Pudi or the gentle person. Gentle person could be male or female, which I argue has been sort of emblematic of the Thai habitus for a century the gentle person. I write a lot about this concept of the habitus. It comes out of Elias and some of the other sociology literature. 
So in the book, I try to actually downplay in personalities, political events, in ideologies, institutions. The main character in the book actually is conduct. I look at how you know, conduct changes over time, and I try and give some reasons why. So I wanted to try and connect the way that the individuals manage their bodies, their speech, and their thinking. And this is kind of a very old, a very sort of deeply rooted way of conceptualising manners in, in Thailand. They always talk about body, speech and mind. To connect this with the big social, economic and political changes in Thailand of the last two centuries. So kind of look at individual behaviour, how that changes against the backdrop of political and economic change. What I'll try and do in, in the short time we have is to explain the overall argument. So going back to the late 1930s, 20th century, the Thai court under King Dulongon carries out a series of reforms to the manpower system by which labour in the kingdom had been organised. Prior to these reforms, peasants and slaves were legally bound or owned by their lords and they were required to perform labour service for them for a certain number of months a year. Over time, many of them got out of it. They paid a fee or some other payment in kind. But King Dulalongkorn carried out a major reform which brought an end to this traditional system of manpower control and indeed slavery in the Thai kingdom. What these reforms did was they had the effect of freeing up Siam's labour market which is one of the requirements to modernise the economy. But the other effect was to loosen the relationship between the lord and the peasant, between the master and the servant. And what this meant was that powerful aristocratic families who were you know, descendants of kings or great noble families, they no longer had this legal control over labour. So it actually has a really profound effect on the economic status of this aristocratic class. And in subsequent decades, many it's kind of an old story that you sort of see in Europe as well, many of these aristocratic families fall on hard times, a lot of them, you can sort of see this in the literature too, a lot of them have to sell their land and property to try and you know, maintain the standard of living to which they were accustomed. As we know, the revolution of 1932 ended the absolute monarchy and this exacerbated this sudden fall in status for the aristocrats. Another really important factor, I won't have time to go into it, but I think it's very important, is the decline of the practice of polygamy, which was widespread amongst the aristocracy and the nobility, not at the peasant level, which is predominantly monogamous. It goes into decline well before 1932. They banned it, I think, in 1935. And what this means is there's an absolute decline in the numbers of people who are related to the royal family or the great noble family. So it actually shrinks in quantitative terms as well. This change in the manpower system and the economic decline of Thai upper class, it profoundly affects the identity of this class. If you can't control labour as a legal right... What did it mean to be a lord, or Zhao in the Thai term? What did it mean to be a lord? At about the same time, the Thai court carries out two other major reforms. The expansion of a centralised royal bureaucracy, modelled on the Dutch and the British colonial bureaucracies, and the creation of a modern standing army. Initially, the king appoints members of the royal family, often his own brothers, to head most of the departments and bureaus in the bureaucracy, as well as the key positions in the military. But the rank and file of this really rapidly expanding bureaucracy and military, they are mostly educated commoners. And this bureaucracy expands very quickly. By 1920, it had increased from about 8,000 in 1890 to about 80,000 in 1920. So what this sudden expansion inevitably does is it leads to a tension between the aristocrat leadership and the commoners. This is a theme in Thai history of this period. There's increasing resentment on the part of this commoner class who are in the bureaucracy and the military against the aristocrats who monopolise the leading positions. And in the literature you see there's these writings about expressing resentment against the arrogance and the born-to-rule mentality of the aristocrats, the fact that they owe their positions not to merit but to their bloodline, that becomes a big debate. 
On the other hand, the aristocrats resent the ambition, the perceived lack of respect, and even the education, which had made them arrogant, the education of the commoners. And so all these tensions kind of come to a head, really, with the 1932 revolution. That's a long explanation, but what it means is you see the weakening and eventual disappearance of the aristocracy from its leadership role in Thai society, and this leads to profound questions about manners and conduct. How should we behave where the traditional exemplars of conduct are in decline? So my argument is that it leads to the emergence of a new ideal of exemplary conduct, that is the figure of the Pudi, this gentle person, that becomes a new ideal. I argue that that ideal has dominated Thai society really up until pretty much the present, at least up until the end of the reign of the late King Pumipotan, the previous king. Just a few comments about manners. When we think of manners, and whenever I was sort of talking about the book, people asked me what I was doing, and when I said manners, often people thought, hmm, interesting, but not really all that important, kind of like how one behaves at a dinner table or saying yes, please, no, thank you, that kind of thing. Sounds a little bit trivial. But my understanding of manners, I for me, it goes much deeper than this. What I'm really talking about is what the sociologists refer to as habitus. And this idea, for those of you who've looked at it, it goes right back to Aristotle through you know, Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages and the sociologists of the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, Weber, Durkheim, Marcel Morse, and later Norbert Elias. And in this sense, habitus means like second nature, the deep, automatic and enduring disposition in the way that one acts, one speaks and one thinks. And history is crucial to the formation of habitus. Marcel Morse describes habitus as the effect of the way that history and society, social ranks included, I'm quoting him here, are inscribed upon our bodies, are daily performed by us. We're shaped by this history. Bourdieu, who comes a bit later, of course, described habitus in a similar way. I quote, A political mythology realised, embodied, turned into a permanent disposition, a durable manner of standing, speaking, and thereby of feeling and thinking. Interesting that Bourdieu should talk about manners in the same way as the Buddhists do, action, speech, mind. For Elias Habitus was an inner automatism, the imprint of society on the inner self. So in the Thai literature on manners, there's a a very similar conception to this sociological conception of Habitus. Much of the old literature embraces or echoes the Buddhist doctrine of how to master the self. It's all about self-restraint, controlling the self. It divides instruction on conduct into three categories, body, speech and mind. The 227 rules for Buddhist monks, the Padimoka, which all monks have to recite every month, there's a whole section which consists of what we would call manners, how to walk, how to speak, how to eat, and this has also been very influential. So I guess my reply to the charge that manners is kind of relatively trivial is that in this broader sense, if you're talking about it's the control of the body, speech and mind, it's kind of the control of the whole self. In that respect, I think it's, it's really important. Let me talk about the author of this famous manual, Qualities of Gentlemen. First published in 1900, it's, as I said, continues to be published until today. It's originally aimed at young men training to enter the royal bureaucracy. It's later taught at co-educational schools throughout the kingdom. And it's very clear in the manners literature that from an early period, the pudi, or the gentle person, refers both to men and women. And in fact, later on, interestingly, it's women who become the major figures in writing about manners. For the next 50 years or after this publication, there's a huge interest in the question of manners. Kings, princes, nobles, prime ministers, monks, senior monks, army generals, active as well as retired, politicians, poets, novelists, education administrators, journalists, etc., etc. They're all writing about manners. And as I said, 
to start off with, it's very prescriptive. It teaches things like you know, how you stand, how you sit, how you walk, how you sleep, how you pay respect to high-status people, how you treat low-status people, how you socialise, how you use one's your free time, how you work, how you play. For almost all the writers on manners, the central question is, what is a pūrdi? What is a gentle person? And the most important point that writer after writer emphasised was that no matter what your social background was, you could be an aristocrat or a commoner, but the most important thing was that you had a good education and good manners. This theme comes through again and again. The notion of pūrdi is not unknown. Some people have talked about it as a mixture of between the Victorian gentleman and Buddhist ideas. And superficially, if you read uh, this guy, Jāpya Pasadet, he was the ambassador to Britain in the late 1890s. He was, one of his jobs was liaising with the royal courts of Europe. So he was part of that late Victorian era. But I don't think this is the right way of looking at it, as sort of, you know, Victorian influence sort of coming in from outside. The way I see it is more along the lines of what Elias describes in the civilising process. That is, and I quote, the courtisation of the bourgeois and the bourgeoisation of courtly people. So it's, a, it's the product of an increasing interdependence, which is another Elias concept, rather than struggle. So I think the Marxist kind of class struggle idea maybe sort of obscures this. There's increasing interdependence between these two classes, which produces this new mode of, of conduct. And so what we're seeing is a declining aristocracy and a rising bourgeoisie, if you like. The habitus of these two classes, of course, is quite different due to the different function of these two classes. It's clear in Thailand... Courtly people are incessantly preoccupied with social status. It really defines their existence, their conception of who they are. In this struggle for status, the relationship with the king is crucial, since the king is the most important factor in, to use again an earlier term, in the distribution of status opportunities. It all depends on the king. He's at the centre. The lives of bourgeois people, of course, are quite different. They're bound up with the world of work and the market where in a courtly people struggle for status opportunities, bourgeois people struggle for economic opportunities. This comes out of Elias, of course. And this process, of course, takes place over centuries, 16th, 17th century, up and through to the 19th century, and it, it ends with the triumph, if you like, of the bourgeois class. So if we understand manners and conduct in this way, uh, we can see that what has come to be understood as Thai manners, which is this kind of transcendent ideal conception which somehow communicates some essence of Thai cultural identity, I think it's not of the kind. Rather, it's a product of this interdependence between two classes for supremacy. Debates in the literature about the Pudi, about the gentle person, kind of reflects this interdependence between these two classes. As I said, there's a huge number of people who are writing on manners. They come from, and maybe you can kind of divide them into sort of two broad groups. Those in the early period in particular, writers on manners who come from a courtly background, they might be you know, aristocrats or you know, figures who are close to the, to the palace or one of the palaces. They don't deny that commoners could become pudi, gentle people, but they tend to emphasise the importance of inherited qualities of the pudi. So if you come from a good family, that's pretty good. That's an advantage. And they also tend to emphasise the Buddhist concept of karma, that is your moral quality comes from your good deeds that you've performed in a past life. So they tend to be quite Buddhist. There's a strong Buddhist inflection in their works on manners. And when you read these works, they're about the pūrdi, they're about the gentle person, but they tend to focus on respect for superiors, deference, order, these kinds of things. People like Paya Anupap, Pop is a key figure in the end of the absolute monarchy, one of the major military generals. 
Kukri Brahmort, very famous minor aristocrat, one-time prime minister, public intellectual. Dog Mai Sop, Thailand's most famous early novelist. Her sister, Mom Luang Bun Lua, Tepsu Wan. Kuning Dutsadi Mala Malagunaitia, the wife of the education minister from the 1950s to the late 1960s, and a number of others. They tend to be closely associated with aristocratic society. But on the other hand, you have the more progressive writers on manners, who are usually commoners, who tend to emphasise that no matter what your background is, anyone can become a pudi. They, in their writings, favour a more egalitarian and more universal conception of manners. Often, for example, Dale Carnegie is really big in Thailand <laughs> from about the 1930s, 1940s. You know, pretty, I think he publishes the, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People, the late 1930s, about then. It's translated really quickly. And these kinds of manners, writers, they really like Dale Carnegie. The self-made man, the self-made man who can kind of hold himself up in high society. People like Gos Rankanang, another famous female novelist, various other novelists and political figures, Tui Bunyaket, who was a one-time prime minister, close, confident of Bidi Phnom Yong, the, sort of the architect of the 1932 revolution. So we get this kind of debate between the more conservative and more progressive manners figures. They all agree on the gentle person, but they have slightly different ways of conceptualising it. The central argument of the book really is that what changes in manners and civility in Thailand, all the changes are driven internally by what Elias calls relations of interdependence, rather than externally by Western influence. That's probably the central argument. Elias has been used a lot for Europe, of course, and the United States, interestingly also for Latin America, much less so for Asia. There is a bit out there, not a great deal, and often the references to Elias tend to be rather sort of tokenish. But when I was reading him, I was just struck by the similarities to Thai court society. And one of his other books, Court Society, that is what it's called, you read some of the descriptions of the court of King Louis XIV, and you could just be almost talking exactly about the Thai court under King Tulalongkorn. It's just so similar. So it seems to me this was an area where his approach could be used in a productive way. Drawing on his approach, what I've tried to do in the book is to make sense of the history of manners and civility by dividing this history into four periods. I divide these periods into, firstly, the age of colonialism and absolutism, from about the 1850s, say, to 1900, thereabouts, the age of revolution from about 1900 to about 1950, the age of reaction, 1950 to about the 1980s, and the age of development and democratisation from about the 1970s up until now. So there's a bit of overlap between each of these ages. But I think using this periodisation schema, we can identify some of the same themes that are central to Elias's explanation of the transformation of manners. That is the establishment of what he calls monopolies on the use of force, the role of courtly society with its highly refined code of manners, which in every society has had a, an influence on his subsequent conceptions of manners, the increasing economic complexity of these societies, which lead to a rising degree of interdependence between different social groups, the rise of the bourgeoisie and this long struggle for supremacy between the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie. I'll just briefly describe each of these periods. So firstly, the age of colonialism and absolutism. For Siam, I see it as starting from about the middle of the 19th century. Siam is drawn out of the old Chinese empire. The last tributary mission it sends to China is 1852. They never send another one after that. And of course, it's drawn into this kind of globalised economy dominated by the British Empire. And at the same time, we see the consolidation of absolute monarchy in Siam. In other words, a monopolisation of force, to use Elias's words. 
In the 1890s, Siam sets up this new royal bureaucracy. It's consciously modelled, as I said, on, on British India and the Dutch East Indies. It's led by princes and the title nobility, but includes these large numbers of middle-class commoners. Guladar, who studied this period, calls his class the bourgeois bureaucrats. And it's precisely at this period, and targeting this new class of bourgeois bureaucrats, that we see the development of new standards of behaviour, expressed often in Buddhist terms of control of the body, speech and mind, but really highlighting or promoting bourgeois modes of conduct. You can sort of see there's, they want to sort of rein in in a feudal excesses of nobility deriving from their sense of birthright and to introduce middle-class notions of personal responsibility, honesty. It's kind of interesting that like, they talk about honesty, how it's important that you must be honest. Sociability, you must treat people well. Industriousness, you need to work hard, get to the office on time, don't be lazy at work. Good work habits is a big one. Punctuality, being on time, very important. And the rational use of time. Unselfishness, you think about other people as well as yourself. Attention to self-presentation, it's a really big one. It's really important to appear, to dress nicely, to be clean, to manage your bodily functions in the proper way. And importantly, they go about this over and over again, consideration of other people regardless of their social rank. Just because they're a peasant or a slave, you can't treat them badly. At the same time, it's still an absolute monarchy, so the social order must be recognised and upheld, but the emphasis is really on cultivating this bourgeois conduct. And so this is what gives birth to, as I say, the figure of the puldi, the gentle person. That's the first age. The second one, age of revolution. Almost as soon as the absolutist state is formed in Thailand, Siam, opposition to it emerges, both from within the courtly society as well as outside. The first couple of decades of the 20th century, it's an age of revolution around the world. The fall of the Qing dynasty in China is a huge one, has a big impact on Thailand, former tributary state. During this period, as I've shown, the class of bourgeois bureaucrats in the royal bureaucracy uh, grows, and as I said, it becomes increasingly resentful of the privileges enjoyed by the monarchy and aristocracy. In 1912, this isn't widely known, there's a conspiracy to overthrow the absent monarchy in Thailand. They actually drew lots as to who was going to kill the king. It was discovered and the conspirators arrested and imprisoned, but as we know, 20 years later, the absent monarchy is finally overthrown. The following years is a sort of a counter-revolution which is put down really easily and basically that's kind of the end of royalist resistance to political change during that period. The People's Party government at the time becomes increasingly anti-royalist. Many aristocrats flee into exile or some of them are jailed. The monarchy is retained. The young king, they have to leave the country. They live in Switzerland for the next 10 years. So Thailand's actually at this period quite close to becoming a republic. And this is the period where we see you know, that progressive idea of manners and conduct become very striking. And there's a strong critique during this period of courtly forms of conduct, modes of deference and respect which had been promoted by the old absolutist regime. More egalitarian middle-class modes of social interaction are promoted, including by the government. There's now pouring of books about the, the gentle person. It's a kind of huge literature, but there's just a few aspects of it. There are books about home management, which is a sort of a sub-genre. Mrs Beaton's book of household management, very famous Victorian-era handbook for housewives, becomes very popular. Etiquette for the modern woman becomes written about a lot. Mary Beery's Manners Made Easy, translated and adapted. Emily Post's Etiquette in Society in Business, Politics and the Home, published in 1922, is also quite popular in Thailand. Samuel Smiles' Self-Help, 1859, is referred to by numerous manners writers. I've talked about Dale Carnegie. Ewing Webb and John Morgan's Strategy in Handling People, another kind of one of these sort of self-help books. 
is also popular. Okay, this stuff is published in Europe and the US, but it's being used because there's a demand for it in this modernised IM. So it appeared during this period from even before the end of the absolute monarchy up until the 19th, and especially after, that the bourgeois notion of good behaviour, good conduct, had won the day. That's what we might have thought. But it actually comes to an end with the third era, or the third age, the age of reaction, which I can only talk about superficially here, but we see the onset of the Cold War and there's a kind of a conservative political reaction in Thailand, which is well known for people who know the history. The People's Party is in disarray after the end of the Second World War. Its progressive agenda really comes to an end. And it really there, the politics of the era definitively comes to an end with Surit's coup in 1957. The monarchy is kind of brought back as a sort of the centre of the polity and we see a slide into a full-blown military dictatorship. And during this period, these very conservative, courtly cultural norms make a strong comeback. And these ideals, you know, courtly ideals of proper behaviour, are elevated as the standard to which all Thai citizens, men and women, should conform. So this is the period when Thai manners is created. This is when they start to use the language of Thai manners. The key institution for inculcating these norms of behaviour is the national education system. There's a big expansion of uh, compulsory education at the primary and secondary levels. The military regime and its royalist supporters control this bureaucracy. There's a arrival of the old courtly manners literature, which emphasise deference and uh, obedience and conformity. And the idea of civility in Thai on Nam, it's kind of a key Thai concept, this idea of civility is elevated to become the key idea in the official notion of Thai manners. So when people talk about what Thai manners is, you tend to see you know, somebody doing the why and in a sort of a mode of deference to a higher status person. I think the teaching of manners, this conservative conception of manners, was crucial to the domination of the military bureaucracy and the monarchy since the late 1950s. One minor aristocrat who wrote a well-known manners manual, Momlong B. Malagun, states in this book published in the 1960s that civility is a characteristic of the Thai people. And we see on the front cover somebody who's prostrating themselves to a higher status person. That encapsulates the dominant conception of so-called Thai manners from the 1960s, quite out of keeping with the early conception. And some other pictures from that same manners manual, which gives you an idea. This is all from courtly society, and this is now promoted as Thai manners. So you can see that there's basically no difference between the male and the female here. And we can see this is Thaksin Chinawat's sister, Yingluck, when she was Prime Minister, prostrating herself almost perfectly before the Princess Sirinton, the younger sister of the current king, before she was ousted in the coup. The fourth era was the age of development and democratisation, so I'll kind of bring it up to the present here. So, of course, you've got this military dictatorship with the monarchy as the figurehead, but at the same time you've got this process of economic liberalisation beginning in the early 1960s. Thailand experiences this long, almost uninterrupted economic boom, lasting really up until the financial crisis of 1997. Some points during this period, it was one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. It's a major economic and social transformation that takes place. These changes start to challenge the conservative status quo and the monopoly of courtly conceptions of good behaviour. And it does so outside of those tightly controlled spheres of the bureaucracy, the military, the schools and the universities. This is a place where the old kind of courtly conception of good behaviour are sort of institutionalised. The new kind of models of how to behave, you find them in the private sector, in the mass media, in popular culture, and since about 2010, the internet and social media. 
nevertheless, they haven't been strong enough to overturn that old courtly conception. One of the things I argue in the book is that courtly conception of good manners is so powerful in Thailand, much more powerful than anywhere else, so I try to explain why. In the civilising process, Elias argues that every country that once had a powerful courtly society, in those countries, courtly styles of conduct have a really major role in shaping modern manners. What's distinctive about Thai manners is, particularly when compared with manners elsewhere in Asia, is the enduring role of the monarchy. Thailand's monarchy survives just. All those challenges of the modern period which sweeps away monarchies in most other Asian countries, or at least sort of neutralises them. The decolonisation or the colonisation process, the social <coughs> revolutions associated with decolonisation, and of course the communist movements in the Cold War. So in Thailand, of course, they're affected by these things as well, but there's a greater sense of continuity with the old absolute monarchy in Thailand than I think almost anywhere else. And that sense of continuity, I think, is enhanced by the long reign of King Pumipon, the former king who was there from 1946 to 2016, 70 years, one of the longest reigning monarchs in the world, which I think you know, goes a long way to explaining why courtly styles of conduct have been sustained in Thailand for a much greater period than elsewhere. I'm coming to my conclusion now. One other... I think really important factor which has been rather overlooked is that for much of the 20th century, Thailand's middle class has been divided between a royal bureaucracy, originally created by the absent monarchy to serve the absent monarchy, and which kind of still deep down, not even deep down, it's, quite, it's not really deep, it's pretty shallow, they still kind of conceive themselves as serving the monarchy, even today, even though there's maybe more of a, a slightly greater service mentality, but, but not very much. So, that, so you have part of the middle class. On the other hand, you have a predominantly ethnic Chinese or Sino-Thai commercial class, which for a long time has been insecure about its status in Thailand. And so in the commercial middle class, that's where you, you normally would find you know, those bourgeois modes of behaviour. So I think this is one of the reasons, one of the key reasons why the bourgeois mode of conduct in Thailand has failed to elevate itself to be the dominant one, because you have these historical tensions between what have previously been understood as Thai ethnic Chinese, which I think in fact, really should be understood as differences in conduct or differences in habitus between a kind of a courtly habitus, which, OK, are ethnically Thai, if you like, and the bourgeois habitus tends to be predominantly found in, in the commercial sector, which is you know, dominated by people of ethnic Chinese ancestry. So this sort of weak and divided nature of Thailand's middle class, dominated by the monarchy and the military, and the ethnic Chinese commercial, people of ethnic Chinese ancestry, let's say. It's more complex than that, I know. Which, for a long time, have been very uncertain about their status in Thailand. So this means that courtly ideals of good manners, which prized expressions of gentility, servility, deference, calmness, softness. They talk about this in minute detail, how you shouldn't speak too loudly, you shouldn't laugh uncontrollably. That's not the way a gentle person should behave. These are you know, embodied in the figure of the Pudi, and nowadays that's kind of seen as what Thai manners are all about. This is a standard by which good behaviour is judged. However, as I argue right at the end of the book, I think that this, the figure of the Pudi as an exemplar of good conduct in Thailand is in decline now, quite rapid decline. You, know, you could argue that King Pumipom was sort of the last of the Pudi, I think. The current guy is anything but, the current king is anything but the Pudi. I think that that's where I come to an end in the book, with the end of the Pudi. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.